And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad throughout the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of that called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from there did the Lord scatter them abroad all the face of the earth. Notice verse 1. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. At this point, people were still together. There was still a oneness. There was still a unity. They began to migrate from different parts of the world. From their center, they began to spread outward. Move and migrate from different parts from the east. And it says that they ended up in a place called Shinar, which is in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, Iran area, down by the Tigris-Euphrates River, where it's rich, beautiful soil to grow. So easy to grow anything. And so they said, well, let's get together and let's get into a city and let's build a tower. And so we see men in here in the book of Genesis and a few chapters before beginning to migrate to cities. Whereas people before were living in the country in a rural kind of an area, they began to see that the city had the answer. So they began to get together. The fear started setting in that they might be isolated, that they might be pulled apart. So they say, let's get together, live in the cities, build the cities. We see humanity's hunger for companionship as they drove to the cities. Now, cities can answer that kind of a problem real easily. If you want companionship, move to a city. If you want a lot of people around you, move to a city. The whole concept of city was to bring unity and oneness. The city satisfies so many pleasures of people, answers so many questions. But at the same time, isn't it interesting that cities are some of the loneliest places in the world? They're so lonely. You, you can walk down the middle of Los Angeles or New York and there's hundreds and thousands of people and you feel like you're a loner because of the coldness sometimes. Everybody's going a hundred thousand different directions. You feel like you're left out. So the cities have a lot of answers, but they have a lot of problems. There's a lot of poverty in the cities. There's a lot of garbage in the cities. When I visited California, my home, a couple weeks ago, I couldn't wait to get out of there. I realized just what a 11 million people box can do to you after a couple days. The smog and the traffic going five, two to five miles an hour on a freeway for an hour and a half gets to you. I used to drive to work. It would probably take here about 10 minutes. It took me 45 to 50 minutes there because of the traffic on the freeway jam-packed. But people began to migrate to cities and they ended up in this place called Shinar. And they began to make bricks to build cities and it says that they began in verse 3. It says, They said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone. They had slime for mortar. They said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach heaven and let us make a name. Literally, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. 
So they began to build towers. Now archaeology has uncovered a lot of these towers. They're about 300 or 350 feet tall. They're rectangular and the top is bigger than the bottom. It gets smaller as it goes. And they've often found towers built next to temples of pagan gods where they would worship gods. Originally, this tower was built to worship God. But later on, they got involved in the signs of heaven and they started worshiping the zodiac and the sun. But here it says they, they got together and they wanted to build a city and to build a tower whose top may reach heaven. They were building a tower really in honor of the Lord. It was a religious kind of a tower. And it reflects man's need to satisfy the spiritual hunger that every man has. You know that the Bible says that we were created with an empty spot. It says that all creation is subject to vanity, which means emptiness. We were all created with an empty spot that cannot be fulfilled until we know God. That's why you see so many unsatisfied people around. They try one thing, they get burned out. They try something else, they get burned out. You see people never happy, saying, if I can only make this much per year, I'll be happy. So they make that much per year. And they say, you know, honey, if we could only have that new house over on the corner, that better one, we'd be real happy. And so they go for that. And it seems like a continual search because they haven't found the Lord. They're never satisfied. They're always running in circles. God created us that way, with an emptiness, on purpose, so that once we find Jesus Christ... We're satisfied that nothing else will fill that void until we meet the Lord in a personal relationship. And so here's the quest for worshiping God. They built a tower to heaven. It says, let us build a tower or a city and a tower whose top, notice, may reach unto heaven. I'm sure that they built this tower and they looked at it and they were impressed by its greatness and say, isn't that a beautiful structure? People are going to walk by and they're going to say, Wow, look what we've done for the Lord. Building this big, beautiful tower whose top may reach heaven. You see, at this point, they were still conscious of God. They hadn't forgotten about God. God was still in their minds. They were still very conscious and hadn't forgotten God. But notice this phrase here in verse 4. And let us make a name... Literally, let us make a name for ourselves. This has sort of been the motto of humanity ever since. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be known for who we are. You know, I'm amazed. Every time I go into a public edifice or a library or some big public hall, you always find a plaque in the back. It says, donated by so-and-so, so-and-so gave this much money in honor of Mayor so-and-so which is fine. But the tower has been built and a name has been made for man. Let's make a name for ourselves. Now this was a religious tower. This was a tower to reach God because they hadn't forgotten God, to reach heaven in honor of the Lord. But they said, let's build a tower to heaven that we can make a name for ourselves. It is so interesting that even many churches have fallen into this. Building big, beautiful building programs. Building towers that reach heaven. And you go in the back and there's always a plaque of the biggest tither who gave the most to this tower. In honor of so-and-so. Or we build crystal cathedrals with inscriptions on them. Who donated what? Monuments that reach heaven. 
but let us make a name for ourselves. I remember one time somebody came up to my pastor in California when I was living there and he offered him a million dollars. He says, I'm rich and I'm going to give you a million bucks for this church to help build it. <laughs> and he says, the only thing, I, I, I don't want anything just a, in the corners, maybe a little plaque. Chuck smiled at him and says, we don't need your money. We don't need a million dollars. There's a lot of poor missionary organizations and struggling little fellowships that would love to have it and I'll give you names of all of them. You can spread it and disperse it didn't hit home very well with him because we want a name for ourselves we want to be known for what we do so he says let us build a city one then a tower whose top may reach heaven let us make a name for ourselves notice lest we be scattered abroad throughout the whole earth so often we build great monuments and buildings in honor of God that only draws attention to man. And it only detracts from the worship of God. Oh, look at that. Beautiful window. And so many buildings in Christianity has fallen into the trap of building monuments that only detract from the worship of God and give glory to man. It's as if the motto would say, glory to man in the highest. That's why we try to keep it in here as simple as possible. Storefront, I mean... People don't drive by and get super attracted to our building on the outside next to a computer store. (laughs) We don't mind. Because so much can detract from the worship of God. It should be just as simple as possible. Because the church is never a building. The church is always a people. And we can get caught up into an edifice complex. I want to read something to you out of a book called The Trouble with Wineskins by Howard Snyder. And this is what he says concerning the church. The church is never a place, but it's always a people. Never a fold, but always a flock. Never a sacred building, but always a believing assembly. The church is you who pray, not where you pray. A structure of brick or marble can no more be a church than your clothes of serge or satin be you. There is in this world nothing sacred but man, no sanctuary of man but the soul. Isn't that beautiful? That's why going inside of a church can never make you a Christian. Just as as the building is not the church, it's just an empty church, just an empty building that we've rented, that we've leased. But the building is not the church. You know that you can take a sociologist and a sociologist could could go through any town and look at ten different churches, just on the outside look at ten different churches and their denominational brand names and predict with high accuracy the average income, the kind of people, the color of the people, and the average occupation of everyone in the church with high accuracy. It's been done. Now that ought not to be so. Because then we have class divisions and immobility. If you were in the early church thousands of years ago, first couple hundred years, if you were to go into a town, say any average town in the Middle East or in Asia, and you'd say, where's the church in this town? They would have directed you probably to a home or a couple homes or a synagogue where they were just meeting. And you would be directed to a group of people, never a building. In fact... The first 200 years of Christianity, they didn't have buildings. They met in homes and they worshipped in the temple that they had there in Jerusalem. On the steps. 
But they had no church buildings as such. And the other interesting fact is that you know when the church grew the very most in its history? The first 200 years. So it shows us that buildings are not essential for one spiritual growth or numeric growth or two spiritual depth because the early church had none. It was a group of people worshiping. We should always keep that in mind, that we are the church. You know, a lot of times they say, well, let's meet at church tonight. And we just say that because we're used to it. But in reality, we're the church. Where two or three gather in Jesus' name, He's in the midst. That is the church. A group of called out people. And so verse 5, it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. I get phone calls every now and then and they, from different people in the community and they say, I have a question. I've heard about you folks. What's the gimmick? How in 11 months can you have grown to the capacity that you've grown? Well, we just, and I just share, well, we teach the word. That's our priority. Well, yeah, I know that. But what is it? What do you do? What do you do to get people in there? I say, well, we pass out candy bars. No. I say, we just teach the word. We don't have pack the pew week or bring a friend to Sunday school week or put a thermometer in the front of the church and say, oh, we've had more people last week than we have this week. We're getting a little sick. We've got to get up there. We just teach the word. Whether there's four people or 400 or 40,000, it doesn't make a difference. We feed the flock of God. That's the priority. It's people, not property. But a lot of times they don't believe it. They call the radio station, I heard, and they said, how much advertising does Calvary Chapel do on the radio? There's got to be a correlation between church growth and and advertising. (laughs) Trying to put God on paper. Let's make a flow chart and see how the Holy Spirit moves. (laughs) Let's plot God on the papers. You know, I personally believe that a normal New Testament church should grow and flourish. That's normal. Churches that don't grow and stagnate is abnormal. The early church grew. They multiplied. And they grew in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the people affected people, affected people in their communities. That's a normal church growth relationship. It's interesting how the Lord has moved us. And it's just the Lord. You know it's not any of us especially you that know us very well. We just met in an apartment complex, just started teaching a Bible study, moved to a theater, moved in here. People say, well, what's your vision? I mean, do you have a building project planned? I said, well, if we had a building project planned, it would, have been, it would be devastating. What if we would have purchased this thing? And we had to knock down, you know, we need probably an elastic chapel more than anything else. But no, we don't have any building programs or projects. We'll just go as the Lord leads. Lee says it's necessary. And so the Lord came down to see what they had done. As they built their tower to the Lord. So many people build monuments, but they rationalize it. They say, well, hey, God deserves the best. I mean, we've got to make something good for the Lord. God's house to live in. God deserves the best. Hey, God doesn't care where you meet. Only people care where we meet. Only people say, well, this is a little dingy. I don't like it here. God doesn't say that. Jesus was born in a stable. 
Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. God doesn't care where you meet or how you meet. Just that you meet and that your heart is right before the Lord. That's the concern of God. I remember again at my church years ago in California, we were just laying carpet in. And at that time, maybe 60 or 70% of the people that came were young, hippie-type, barefoot. They always were. They never had shoes, just bare feet. And some of the people found out that the oily, the oil in the feet can destroy the carpet. And the carpet layer said, you better not have people with bare feet on all the time like you have. The carpet will be destroyed. And so some of the people, the congregation got together and they put out a big sign in front of the foyer with, they were going to get a box of thongs so that you could, you could go in the church if you were barefoot but you had to put thongs on. But it said, no bare feet allowed. And uh, my pastor came in, Chuck, and he saw it and he just got incensed. He ripped it off. He says, if that's the case, we'll rip out the carpet. We don't need the carpet. If we're going to keep people out because they have bare feet or oil, who cares? The basic decision was, that, is it property that's important or is it the people that's important? Is the church a property in a place or is it a people? Are we going to build a monument that's going to last or is it going to be people that we're going to feed and that we're going to teach and they're going to grow strong? And they went on the favor of the people, not the property. Praise the Lord. So the Lord came down to see the city. Building their tower to the Lord. One that would reach heaven, but a name for ourselves. Now this was a religious tower. They hadn't eliminated God. Remember that now. God was still around. They didn't want to eliminate God. You know, dear old God, we have to still have Him around. But God, don't call us, we'll call you, huh? God will put you in a convenient place. We'll build a tower and we'll be religious, but on our terms, we want to control God. We want to legislate this God business. We want to get the boards together and decide about this tower and the committees. We won't eliminate Him completely, but we'll legislate Him. We'll regulate God. And so God came down to see. Now, that's important because at this time, God had become afar off to them. God was an impersonal being. God was a far off, God was distant. Here it says, God came down to see. God came down to them. Reflecting a personal God, one who's concerned and intimate in the relationship aspect is stressed here. They had institutionalized God. He was an institution, someone who could be figured out on paper, someone who they could build their buildings to, file in their annual reports. That was God to them. Institutionalize. God came down to see the city, to build the tower which the children of men had built. It is so sad to see so many churches that have institutionalized God. They have forgotten the closeness and the intimacy of God. God is a far off. How many times have you seen, when they talk about God, they think of God as up there and we being down here? Oh God, like He's up in the sky somewhere, dwelling up in the heavens somewhere, way afar off, millions of miles, and He peeks down with His eyes and He sees what we're doing. Instead of realizing that Jesus Christ lives in our midst and lives inside of us. And this is where they were at. They hadn't completely eliminated God, but they were on their way. He'd become institutionalized. He'd become a far off Not intimate, not personal anymore. Notice verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. He noticed their unity of language again. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. 
God came down and He analyzed the situation. He looked and He saw that now man was beginning to think that nothing was too hard for him. That he could accomplish anything. And God saw the danger of them turning from the Lord and thinking that they had the power to do anything at all. Isn't that man's estimation of himself? We can do anything. We can create anything. And man begins to turn from God, putting him afar off, eliminating him, putting him on an institutional plane, still having their towers, but making a name for themselves. And that personal, intimate God is no longer there. Institutionalizing him. Regulating him. And then it says in verse 7, Go to, notice, let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon all the face of the earth and they left off to build a city. Therefore is the name of the place called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth and from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon all the face of the earth. Now why did God do this? Was God threatened? Was God afraid? Did God figure that, oh no, they're getting out of control, they're going to master the world and I won't be able to control them anymore? No. God was stopping them in their folly, in their foolishness. Because now they were beginning to think that they could do anything by themselves. They were making themselves the center instead of God. They were becoming their own gods. We can do anything. This is the beginning of humanism. The human element. If you really believe hard enough, you can accomplish it. You can do it. Now that's great incentive. But that philosophy carried to the extreme ends up in the Tower of Babel. Building a monument unto God. Leaving God afar off and impersonal. Beginning to think that you are now the center. Turning from God. And God looked at man and realized that man, because he thought he could do anything, would not even be able to cope with the problems that he would create. So he scattered them. Isn't that true? We can't even cope with the problems that we've created. We have have found and we have experimented with atomic energy. Great experience, great experiments. But now we're not even able to cope with the problems that that learning can create. Now we're facing annihilation of the whole world where people have this power at their fingertips ready to push buttons. And God saw the folly of man as they would turn from God, make themselves their own gods. So he began, he went down to scatter them. Now the significance of this story in this chapter is this. A couple chapters before this, God destroyed the whole world. God wiped out every living creature except eight people, Noah and his family. We studied about him last week. As God destroyed the world, God now started over. New beginnings. A fresh start. Fresh clay. Now God's saying, I'm in control once again. It's going to be great as people submit their lives to me. And it was a new beginning. It was a new start. But as we've said before, history has this bad habit of repeating itself. And they begin to be sort of like before the flood. Started outright, placing God afar off still being religious, building their towers, but forsaking God, losing their first love. They strayed from God. They had this outward form of the Lord, but they kept God at a distance. So God says, we'll go down 
And it says, verse 8, The Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build a city. Imagine going to work and not being able to communicate. Going to your foreman and trying to talk to him in English, and he's all of a sudden talking some other language. And you can't communicate, you can't understand. How horrible. Trying to find someone who talks in the same language that you do. If you've ever been in a foreign country and you try to talk to people who don't know English, you know what I mean. It's tough. It's horrible. you got to do sign language. When I was in France, in Paris, nobody spoke English, or at least they pretended real hard not to. <laughs> and I couldn't communicate at all there. I went to every bank on the street and no one could help me. I couldn't cash a check. I looked, showed him my American Express, my little picture of Carl Malden, but it didn't do any good. <laughs> they wouldn't cash it. It was confounding. We couldn't communicate. And so the Lord scattered them throughout the whole earth. As you read in the scripture, you realize an interesting thing about history is that we fail to learn from the mistakes of the past. You would think that if you were Israeli or if you were Jewish in the Old Testament and you would have heard about or read this story, you would have said, oh, how horrible. We'll never do that. But Israel did the same thing. God chose Israel established them as a nation to be the light of the whole world. They were established in God. God blessed them. They followed the Lord. Miracles were done in their midst. And they reduced God to an outward form, to a ritual. They became ritualistic and legalistic. And history was beginning to repeating itself in the nation of Israel. All over again, just like the Tower of Babel. They were going to the temple. Every week in Jerusalem, the beautiful temple God had made and they were a religious revival, but it wasn't from their hearts. And God told Jeremiah to stand out in the temple and to proclaim his judgment against them. So as people were coming to the temple, Jeremiah stood out there and he said, don't trust in lying vanities, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. He was saying you're trusting in the fact that you go to the temple every day and you've got this outward form of religion. He denounced it. Then God spoke through a prophet named Isaiah. And God shared his real heart with Israel who was going right into the same habit and back into the the same form that Babel was going into. And I'd like you to look at that for a minute in the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. This nation who had experienced God's blessing, God's presence, God's handiwork in their midst had now reduced God to a ritual. They began worshiping the gods of materialism, pleasure, even their own prophets went around saying, that's okay. You're, out, you're supposed to have the best. You're supposed to be rich. God won't judge you, His people, His children. They were about two days away from God sending in the Assyrian army to wipe out Jerusalem. Even their own prophets were tickling their ears with doctrines they wanted to hear. It's amazing. When people want to hear something, you just can't tell them the truth. A lot of times people come in for counseling and all they want to hear is that they're right. And so they ask your opinion, and you tell them the truth, and they get all upset. And they go to another counselor, and to another one, until they can find someone who will pat them on the back and say, you're right, go ahead, do what you want. That's what I wanted to hear, that's good counsel. (laughs) But you tell them sometimes the truth, they don't want to hear the truth. Notice what God said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, And we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
To what purpose? Now he's speaking to Jerusalem, but he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings and of rams, of the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks, nor of lambs or of he goats. Now what a strange thing for God to say. Because God commanded them to bring these sacrifices. It was part of the Old Testament law. God said, bring these sacrifices to me. I'll delight in them. But now he says, I don't delight in them. He says in verse 12, When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. Your new moons and your Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot bear. It is iniquity, even the solemn meetings. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be as red as crimson, they shall be as white as wool. They had ended up just like Babel, going through the forms of worship, building the monuments, but in a very sick spiritual state. You know, you look at the United States today and you realize there are so many churches in this country. There are more missionaries from the United States than any other country in the world. More churches than any other country in the whole world. And yet it's something like 75 to 80% of all the ministers that stand in pulpits do not even believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who fail to learn from history it is said, are doomed to relive history. If you fail to learn the lessons from history, we're doomed to relive all over again. As I look at our country this morning, as I remember about the founding fathers who came here and established a nation under God, free to worship God, not freedom from worshiping God, freedom to worship God, based on biblical principles, founded in the Lord. And I believe that the United States was founded on biblical principles by the will of God. There's a book I'd recommend called The Light and the Glory by Peter Marshall. It'll give you a lot of insight in this. And our nation was founded to be the light of the world even, as nations around us were spiritually falling. And it was based on biblical principles. The only textbook at one time was the Bible in our schools. Now you can't even bring one to school. We've stamped, In God We Trust, but it's against a lot of praying in our schools. We have fallen from this state. We've become a byword. You've heard of the ugly American. We've become a byword to many people. A nation who professes Christianity. And so back to Genesis chapter 11. Let's look at this verse one more time. It says, verse 4, And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven. Let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad throughout the face of the whole earth. The United States, and let's bring it right down to our level, the United States has sinned before the Lord. A nation that was once set in godly principles have sinned. We have failed in what God has intended for us as a Christian, quote, And I say, quote, nation. 
I think the only hope for the United States, being real honest with you, is a God-sent revival. Now, I'm not talking about tent revivals where they put sawdust down and take huge offerings. Or having a, a, quote, revival in a church once a year. Revival tonight from 7 to 10 p.m. As if that's the only time God's going to revive. <laughs> Frankly, I'm skeptical at those kinds of things. In fact, you find ch- the word revive means to bring back from the dead. Churches that are often always having revivals is quite an indictment against that church. <laughs> revival, we're having another revival, but it stays the same. It never changes. I'm talking about a God-sent revival. Today in China, there are not hundreds, not thousands, but there are millions, literally millions of people coming to know Jesus Christ. There's mass revival. That happened one time in our nation. I think God needs to send it again. I think it needs to begin with us, the church of Jesus Christ. Not just looking and saying, that person needs to get right with God, that person needs, or the United States, this and that, but us, as Christians, need to realize the danger of building monuments to God, of starting out so pure and then walking after the flesh. You know that it's almost impossible to get a right-on Christian program that really exalts Jesus Christ on a major network. It's too controversial, they say. But you can put some scum or some filth on a major network, but something that is really convicting and pricks the heart and exalts Jesus Christ is awfully hard to get on a major network. We've turned. We have built buildings that reach to heaven. We've created names for ourselves. Now, personally, I have problems with that. I have problems with people who build churches or universities or something and they tag their name on it. So-and-so church, so-and-so university. That's just my own hang-up. I just have a problem with that. Glorying to man. Detracting from God. Oh, he's done so much for God. They've done so much for the Lord. No, the Lord has done so much for them. They just happen to be used by God and be a part of it. They have nothing to do with it. Isn't it amazing? Now, if you were a patient and you went to see a doctor and he was to perform surgery and he used a scalpel and he used a needle and he used some thread, after the operation, you wouldn't go up to the scalpel and go, praise you, scalpel. You've done so much for me. The doctor would say, hey, what about me? Because it was the doctor doing the work, not the instrument that he used. We ought not to give glory to the instrument. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that people see you and glorify your Father in heaven, not you. Let us make us a name. I think that the church, this is, again, I feel very strongly about this. I believe the church has so many sacred cows that they just don't want to get rid of. So many traditions and rituals that they have to hang on to that aren't necessarily biblically based. And you say, well, why do you practice that in church? Well, we've always done that. It's just something we've always done. That's why so often, when God wants to pour out His Holy Spirit in a mighty way, He often goes outside the organized church circles and church structures because they become so rigid that God can't move in there. He just says, well, I'll just bypass and I'll just go to someone who's open and willing and ready to move and wants to move by the power of my Holy Spirit. We see that time and again, often. I look at churches today. I'm not knocking any particular ones at all. They're all brothers in Christ. But I see priorities that have strayed. Building programs. Monuments to men. Millions and millions of dollars spent. 
for monuments that end up being monuments not to God, but to men. That give glory to men, not unto the Lord. You go into churches and you hear the offering being passed once, twice, three times. Come on! We need your help. God needs your support. Let's support God. Let's support God financially. God isn't doing so well this week. We need to help him his bank account out a little bit. A lot of you know it's true. Churches end up fleecing the sheep, not feeding the sheep, caring about what they can get, not what they can give. Ministers living high on the hog while people in their church starve to death. Fleecing the, the people of God. Using carnal techniques to motivate the people. Now, don't you want God's work to continue? And if you really want God's work to continue, you'll support it. And this work might not keep going unless you support it. And so poor little old Ethel, who collects his little check once a week or once a month, that isn't very much, feels so guilty. If I don't support this ministry, it's going to fail. Oh, and I don't want to let God down, so I'll give it to them. There are churches who hire paid professionals who come in and have, quote, revivals, and they guarantee the pastor a certain percentage of people increase and a certain uh, percentage of uh, the, the tithing increase. For a fee, they'll come in and they'll hype the people up with their spiritual jargon and they'll guarantee that the people will, will show up and that they'll get their quota of tithe of money. I have heard recently of a, quote, evangelist who denied coming to a church for a revival because he didn't get paid enough. Oh, they'll weep for souls if the price is right. Oh, we'll cry for the lost, but we've got to have this much money to make it. We have sinned as a country, as the United States of America, a, quote, Christian country. I want to read something to you that's very interesting in the Gallup poll. George Gallup has released a lot of information and statistics about Christians, and he said this. He said that there is a revival and an upsurge, a hunger for people's relationship with God. But he said that 30% of the people who don't go to church don't go to church because of the emphasis on money. The people that he's interviewed, they say, we don't go to church because every time I go, they beg for our bucks. Then he said that 23% of the unchurched people didn't go because they didn't like the traditional forms of worship, the dress codes that were put upon them. You have to wear a suit and a tie and this and that. And the regulations. They couldn't relate, they said. We've tried to go to church, but we just can't relate. They're way up here somewhere. We can't get into it. 32% said that they would go back to church if they could find people that they could discuss their doubts honestly with and their spiritual needs. The other day, a member of the Sun Young Moon Unification Church came into my wife's work. She was talking to them. And uh, he said that he tried fundamental Christianity for two years. But it didn't work. And that Sun Young Moon offered him a deep relationship and closer walk with God. And anyone who offers me a close and deeper relationship with God is worth following. What does that tell you? That the church has failed. We've set up our institutions. We've built our buildings, our monuments to heaven that speak of the glory of man. And we've left people out of the picture. Quite a sin. Quite an indictment. For suburban materialistic Christianity. We've served the gods of materialism. Now preachers tell everyone that you're to have the best. You're to have a Cadillac. You're supposed to walk in perfect this and perfect that. Let the world starve. 
But you're supposed to have this because you're a child of God. Not sharing your wealth, just taking it onto yourselves. I heard a famous, famous evangelism say a couple months ago, I have so many famous paintings and expensive pictures in my house, I don't have enough walls to hang them on. Praise the Lord. Widely worldwide known. That is an anathema, I believe, to the Lord. Okay, that's Babel, that's Israel, that's the United States. What about us? On a personal level, what can we do? Should we talk out against the social upheavals and the wrongs in the world? Well, this is what you can do, number one, is pray. You can see this, not just complain, but let's pray. For the Bible says, if my people which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. So that's what we can do. We can pray. We can look at our president. Instead of saying, what a stupid decision he made, we can pray for him. What a dumb cabinet we have. We can be on our knees and we can intercede for them. We can pray for revival. We can pray for our rulers like the Bible says. We can pray for the churches that they get on fire for Jesus Christ, that they teach the Word, they'd feed the flock, that their priority would be people. Instead of looking at the church and say, look at that dumb church over there, it doesn't do anything right, they're always doing that, is that we can pray for them. Number two, we can share the gospel. We can share our lives with people. Wherever we are, at work, at school, at home, we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ, a positive influence. Paul the Apostle said, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Woe unto us if we preach not the gospel. Be simple, be straightforward, be sincere. But also, let's practice what we preach. Let's show them the gospel. If we say we're Christians, let's show it at work. Let's show it when we're around friends, wherever we go. It is possible to walk in the Spirit and then to fall and to stray into dead religion. We've seen it happen over and over again in history. At the Tower of Babel, in Israel, the United States. Even Calvary Chapel. That the Lord is blessed and is starting off so pure. Let us beware lest we fall into traditions and rituals and regulate how God would move. Blessed are the flexible. Let's be open and flexible to how God would want to move. Not tied down to a certain method or a certain way because we feel comfortable with it. Let's be open to the Lord. Open to what God would want to do. I want you to end, or I want you to turn to one scripture that we'll end with. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. There's a message for us as Christians. Revelation chapter 2. It says in verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, or the churches. I know your works, he's speaking to the church, your labor, your patience, and how you can't bear them who are evil. You have tried them which say they are apostles, and you are not, and you have found them liars. You have borne, and you have had patience for my name's sake. You have labored, and you have not fainted. He's talking to a working church, one who's out doing the gospel, one who's doing great things for God. 
You've done so well. You've labored. You've had patience. You've seen those who are false prophets and apostles. You've done so well. So he gives them their report card, straight A so far. You guys are great. And after telling them all their good things, he says, but nevertheless, I have something against you. You have left your first love. Remember from where you are fallen and repent and do your first works or else I will come unto you quickly. I will remove the candlestick out of this place except you repent. He was speaking to a church who started out so good, who went through the motions, but they left the emotions. They were regulating God and Jesus is saying, I will not have it. I will not be controlled or regulated. If I can't control my church, I'll move on. I will not hang around a loveless church. Jesus says, return to your first love. The Tower of Babel is the tower of many Christian lives, many churches. And it's a warning to us that we stay and be committed to Jesus Christ, our first love, that love relationship with the Lord, on fire for God. Never slipping into an institutional kind of a religious thing where we come and we have worship and we go through the study and we go home, but we live what we learn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the examples of history as we learn from them. And Lord, we pray this morning that we'll never fall into dead religion, that we'll never stray away from walking in the Spirit, that we'd never build monuments that bring glory to ourselves, that they bring glory to you and that we depend wholly upon you that we'd return to our first love. That the earmark of this fellowship would be love, would be giving and would be living the gospel that we are so blessed with having. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Behind the Iron Curtain, today there is great revival taking place. A new beginning like the Tower of Babel, like before or right after the flood. People are turning to Jesus Christ. They love the Lord. If we were today to do an experiment of the church behind the Iron Curtain and the material that they have, I would take this Bible and I would tear out the pages and distribute them evenly to all of you. For we would only have one Bible between all of us. Then after you would have read your section, you would trade off with everyone in the building. So after a few years, we all have gone through one Bible. Because many of them have only one, but their relationship with God is so rich, so warm. Because they're constantly threatened. And we've heard news from people behind the Iron Curtain. They say, we want you to know that we're praying for you in the United States. Because they say, you in the United States, we're not the suffering church, you are. Because we don't compromise. We can't compromise. We have threats on our lives all the time. But it's so easy for those in countries like you to compromise the gospel, to fall into a dead religion. So he says, we want you just to know that we're praying for you, the suffering church. Quite a message in that. The beautiful thing is that if we begin in the Spirit, that we continue to walk in the Spirit that we never regulate God, that we're always flexible and open. That's my prayer for you and for this fellowship. And not only this, but every church in this town.